Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We will read verses 25 through 34. Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you, will you drink? Nor about your body, what will you put on? Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, for being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will, will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And that ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, we come before you aware that we are in your presence. We are always in your presence. But when the church gathers, we are especially in your presence in the presence of Christ, who promised that where two or three gather together in his name, there he is in their midst. We're mindful of that imagery of the book of Revelation, of the Spirit of God walking through the lampstands and amidst the lampstands of the church. Father, we come before you and bow in gratitude as every Lord's Day we gather to remember that Jesus was risen from the dead on the first day of the week. We come in gratitude because we can worship you and address you and pray to you as our Father in heaven because Jesus bought that privilege for those of us who believe in him. And we pray for your glory and for your honor. We pray that you may be magnified as you have been in the singing of our praises, that you may be magnified in the reading of Scripture, in our hearing of the explanation of Scripture, that you may be glorified, Father, that all things may be done unto your glory. And that is our request and our prayer. And we plead and beseech your help to the one who speaks and to those who hear. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So I was coming the other day from the airport and I, I like to use a metro rail because it's a cheaper version to come to my house you pay 250 
and make it to Dateline, and then the Uber is cheaper from there, or somebody goes, picks me up, and takes me home. So as I was doing that, I noticed a gentleman who was riding with his bicycle, and my eyes were just drawn to the bicycle, the simplex, the plates, the lever to shift, the very modern system to brake, uh, and then this fancy stand it had for iPhones. And that brought me to think about the bike I used to have when I was 15. My mother spent a month's salary buying that bike for me. It was $175 back in the day. And that was my most prized possession. It was my only asset, my main mode of transportation, and I felt that I was riding a Porsche or something like that as I would be riding my bike. And then I saw it. If somebody, when I was 15, would have shown me a movie of 45 years into the future and would show me what God has given to me, I would have spared myself of a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, and a lot of concerns about the future. And Jesus' teaching this morning is precisely that lesson. The lesson of why do you worry? Why are you anxious for things that you shouldn't be anxious about? I don't believe that I have learned that lesson. I stand here to present a passage in Scripture that I wrestle with daily, and I stand here as one who spent a sleepless night even before preaching this sermon considering and dealing with my own anxieties. So I am not here as the guru who has mastered this passage and who has mastered how not to be anxious, but I'm here as a fellow sinner to be reminded with you of Jesus' promise and commandment in this passage, which is, do not be anxious about your life, or if you want to flip it and put it positive, if you're going to be anxious about something, if you're going to mind something, mind what really matters. The Lord's Prayer, it's a prayer that it's a pattern of prayer. We evangelicals use it as a pattern of prayer. Roman Catholics use it as a prayer to repeat. Whatever you decide to do with the Lord's Prayer, whether you repeat it mindfully, not as a mindless repetition, or you use it as a pattern of prayer, Please observe how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. When you pray, put the things of God first. Sometimes even in our prayer sheets, we, we, we have so many things about our lives and about our things. And we forget that even as we pray for somebody who's sick, even as we pray for somebody looking for employment, even as we pray for things that belong to our lives, the priority is not my thing, but it is God's glory. Our Father who are in heaven hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. It is the priority and the focus on that which is God's. And if we do that, the passage promises all these other things that you need and are concerned about and even anxious about will be added unto you. Now notice the text in our ESVs. I don't know what version of the Bible you use. It starts with a therefore. And that therefore is a conjunction that is uniting this passage with whatever 
is before it. And the link of this passage is that Jesus had just commanded his disciples to make treasures in heaven. If you're going to make treasures, if you're going to store for something, if you're going to prepare for the future, make treasures in heaven where thieves cannot steal what you have, where, where moths and, and rust cannot destroy what you have. Back in the day, you would treasure things with linen fine linen or things that were of value, but they could be destroyed with moths, with insects, or with rust. Jesus says, if you're going to make treasures, make them at a place that none of these things will destroy them. Make your treasures in heaven. And in that context, then he gives two commandments. And the two commandments are, do not be anxious about your life, therefore, because you're making treasures in heaven, and please remember that you will not change anything by worrying or seek the kingdom of God first. It's basically the same commandment turned or flipped. Don't worry about your life. Worry or put first the things of God. And then he gives two arguments. God will take care of your needs as you make treasures in heaven. And you cannot change anything about if you worry. Nothing can be changed by us getting preoccupied about it. We can do things when we have a problem and act upon those things, but just by getting worried, nothing will change whatsoever. And then he gives two simple examples. Nobody can add a life or an hour to their lifespan. And I know the translation is complicated. Some of your Bibles read, you cannot add a cubit to your stature. It's just an expression that means you cannot change your circumstances. You cannot change the main things about your life. And you cannot remove the evils of each day by worrying. Each day will bring its own problems, will bring its own evils. By worrying about tomorrow, you're not going to remove them. This passage we read doesn't really require a preacher. <laughs> I feel like, what can I tell you from this? What this passage requires is prayer. Prayer for more faith. That when we read it, we really believe it. So I just want to split the passage in five things and they come alliterated. And it just happened. The premise, the promise, the priority, the provider, the provided. That's what I want to say about the passage. I don't think... As I always tell you, those outlines are inventions of preachers. They are not in the text. But it's a way to look at it. What is the premise of the passage? Already mentioned. The link. Therefore, do not be anxious about your life. If your treasures are in heaven and cannot be destroyed and cannot dwindle, whomever has 401ks or IRAs or or whatever 503Bs, whatever plans you have, you know that you didn't like 2022. You know that even though you kept putting money on your 401K, the funds kept coming down. And at the end of the day, we are at the whims of the economy and of the market. Well, Jesus says, your treasures are at a place that are not subject to market fluctuations. I find it fascinating that the market gets angry when the economy is doing good. So for the market to grow and for our funds to grow, we need to have more unemployment and more people shedding people to the streets so that the market feels that their inflation is going to sort of taper down so it can grow. 
So for my 401k to grow, I need to wish that people lose their jobs. What a, what a contradictory thing about life. But that's the way it seems to be working. Now, Jesus says, where you have your treasures, don't worry. It's not going to go down. It's secured. It's not going to dwindle. Only illustration I can come up with recently is driving in the Dominican Republic. If you've ever been to the Dominican Republic, if you've never been, if you go, don't drive there. It is, I've, I've been told that Egypt, Cairo, is a worse place to drive than Santo Domingo. But that is a crazy place to drive. From two lanes, people make five. And there's all kinds of motorcycles and bicycles and tricycles and all kinds of things moving around you. And people do not crash, but you think that they're going to crash into you. Now, that drives a lot of people crazy. People get angry, get frustrated, road rage. Things happen because it's, it's really overwhelming. However, when I'm driving there, I'm just laughing. I'm having a blast just at seeing the craziness of traffic. Do you know why? Because I don't live there. I couldn't care less. I'm just going to spend a week or three or four days here. I'm going back home. That's the point. Jesus says, this is not home for you. You're camping. You're pilgrims. You're going through a very temporary stage in your eternal existence. Therefore, do not be anxious about your life, this life. And then he argues from the lesser to the greater. He says, is not life, your life, more than food? Is not your body more than clothing. In other words, what's easier? To create life or to feed that life? What's easier? To build a functioning body or to dress that body? Of course, God already did the harder thing or the hardest thing. I love to read those SETI statements, search of extraterrestrial intelligent life elsewhere. And, and, and the argument for what do you need to have life in one of those exoplanets, exoplanets, those Earth-like planets. You need to have the right distance from the star they orbit from. You need to have the right axis inclination. You need to have the right rotate. You need to have a combination of things that is mind-boggling. So we have life on Earth because God designed it that way. But it is so complicated to have a planet out of the millions and gazillions of planets out there, so difficult to have one that can harbor and host life. And Jesus says, okay, God did that already. So the rest is easy for him. It's like that illustration of the paralytic who's been brought under or down a roof. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And people say, who does this guy think he is? Who is he to forgive sins? And Jesus says, oh, you don't believe me? I can't forgive sins? What is easier? To tell the paralytic your sins are forgiven or to tell him, go take your, your, your stretcher and walk. Well, so that you know I can forgive sins. Hey, take your stretcher and walk. And the guy grows limbs, strengthens his legs, takes his stretcher and goes. God already did the most difficult part. And that is Jesus' argument. Now, at the root of anxiety and worrying, do you know what really lies? Unbelief. Whenever I am worried and anxious, you know where I land? He's not telling the Lord, oh Lord, I beg you, please change my circumstances. 
please change the heart of such and such or give me this or give me that. No, no. I land saying, Lord, please forgive me because I am sinning against you. I am sinning of unbelief. We do not need better circumstances. We do not need more money. Really, we don't. What we need is a change of heart. What we need is the experience of Elisha with Gehazi, if I'm saying that right. Elisha with his servant. That he comes to the place where the Syrian army has the city surrounded. And I, I like the way it reads in Second Kings 6. Let me read it. When the servant of the man of God went up out early in the morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. And this is what he says. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? <laughs> Sounds like some of us. The servant asked, don't be afraid. Elisha answered, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And this is what Elisha prayed. Elisha didn't pray, Lord, change his heart. Lord, remove the Assyrians or the Assyrians from our midst. No, no, no. He said, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. See, our problem is not the circumstances. Our problem is not Joe Biden or the Democrats or Trump and the Republicans. That's not our problem. It is so sad that many times we Christians are the most short-sighted and ridiculous of all people. Because we, our preacher, our favorite preacher is either Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or whomever it is your favorite preacher. We don't need a change in circumstances. We don't need a change in the Chinese government and, their, and the probes they are sending up in the air and if they are destroying them fast enough or not. That's not where our problem is. Our problem is in our hearts. What we need is to have eyes to see the spiritual realities that surround us. And the spiritual realities that surround us is that God is on his throne. And let the whole earth make silence before him. Nothing happens without him. I was listening to a clip from a preacher the other day. God is a gentleman. And you need to open. He's knocking at the door. And if you open, he will come in. But he's a gentleman. He will not impose himself. I couldn't worship a God like that. I'm surrounded by gentlemen and politically correct people. The God I worship is one who Psalm 115 describes him as our God is in the heaven. He does whatever he pleases. He is in charge. He is in control. And Jesus says to his disciples, your father has taken care of the most difficult things. Don't worry about it. Don't be anxious about your life. And that leads us to the second point, which is the provider. It's not just the, the, not just the premise of, well, we have treasures in heaven. Well, who is the provider? The text says, your heavenly Father. And he starts by, look at the birds of the air. Your heavenly Father feeds them. I, I find it fascinating that when Jesus taught us to pray, the first thing he taught us to say is, our Father who art in heaven. What do you think is that? He, wants, he wanted us to have the right heart before we start praying. 
I am talking to my Father in heaven. <laughs> the paternity of God is one of those lost jewels in our minds and hearts. And perhaps the more theologically correct we are, the more we lose that reality of the paternity and the proximity of God to those who are His. That's why when he taught about prayer, he said, guys, if, if, if any of you has a child and ask him for, a, for an egg, will you give him a stone? Your child is hungry, Dad, and I have an egg. Yeah, here, have this rock. Of course not. If you being evil know how to give good things to your children, how much more do you think your heavenly Father will give to those who ask him? And Jesus brings that example of your heavenly Father took care of the hardest things, he will take of the little things. And you may say, oh, but I cannot relate. Oh, why not? Oh, because you don't know how my dad was. I had a horrendous father. I had an absent father. I had a cruel father. Let me, take, let me talk to you about mine. If, we, if you want to go there, let me talk to you about mine. And, I, and I'm not dishonoring the fifth commandment. But I don't think my dad liked us a lot. He would come to the house twice a week. And he didn't spend a lot of time. He would just come to sleep because he had another family with whom he spent more time and he liked them more. Now, this dad who, by my standards and by your standards, probably didn't like us a lot, never, ever let us go hungry. Ever. He loathed my mother, but he fed her. He always put food on our table. And with tears, I have thanked God that I had a dad who never let me go hungry when I was a kid. Now, this is a man who was cruel and who was absent and who didn't like us. <laughs> what would God do as a father who gave us his most precious gift, his son? And I thank God that my father had this sense of responsibility to feed a family he didn't like. Well, God gave us his most precious gift while we were yet enemies. Because we forget Romans 5.32 often. Romans 5.8, I'm sorry. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Sometimes we have this sense that, oh, when, that, when Jesus died on the cross, it's because he saw my good heart. He saw that I would believe. He saw through the funnels of time that I had a soft heart. No, the text says, while we were enemies, rebels, children of wrath, just like the rest. Those are not my words. Those are the words of Ephesians 2. There, God loved us and gave his son to die for us. So if he did that while we were enemies, what will he not do? now that we have been adopted into his family as his own dear children. Look at the lilies of the field, Jesus says. I, I love this preaching. I have a friend who says, Edwin, I like that you preach so simply. And he says, no, it's not that I preach simple. It's that I, have, I don't have a lot in my head, so I have to come simple because that's all I get. Now, Jesus being God and having a lot of things to say, preached simple. So when he was preaching, he, he just says, look, guys, look at the grass. You're sitting on the grass. 
Look at the lilies of the field. I, I had the privilege of seeing that place where the Sermon on the Mount was preached. It's fascinating. It's a little hill. You can see the lake at the bottom, and you can see the grass. It was open air preaching. Look around. Look at, the, at those, um, how do you call them, wild flowers. Solomon, with all his magnificence. You know that in, in the days of Solomon, silver didn't have any value. There was so much gold and so much wealth that silver was worthless. It was treated like dust, like rocks. Solomon, with all his glory, could not spin, could not have a dress made the way a lily of the field is made. He couldn't dress as God dresses grass that is now and tomorrow is dried and it's sent to the oven to be burned because it's just bothering. That's your heavenly Father who does that. Some of you know, some of are visiting, and you don't know this, but I'm going to tell you. Some of you know that I'm not, I don't have it all together on my head. So I love to pick up, collect bugs that I rescue from our pool. And one of the things I love about those bugs is to watch them very close with a light. Because they look like, I don't know, space ships, alien ships. They, fascinating designs. And I had a friend of mine who used to be a dentist but now he's a photographer. He's a nature photographer. He says, can you send me one of those cool bug pictures you take? He says, oh, here's one. This skippy um, spider. Something we would run from. Something we would see and despise or squish. Look at those cool colors. I wish I could have a, I don't know, some kind of painting or something adorning my living room with those cool colors. God does that for animals we despise and run from. God has made amazing things in the bottom of the sea. Nobody cares. Nobody sees that unless you have a special submarine. If God does that, what will he not do for your needs of dress? You see, again, the problem is not in our circumstances. The problem is in our hearts. This is an encouraging note from Jesus, but it's actually a rebuke to our little faith. It is a statement of how little we believe, how frustrated and flustered we get when something happens that we're not expecting. The AC doesn't turn, turn, uh, turn on in the middle of the night. What happened to the AC? Is that compressor? Did I have to, do I have to dish out $4,000 for a new compressor? No, it's a stupid switch that costs $100. But immediately we jump scared. The problem is not the AC. The problem is my heart. Whenever we have an inconvenience, you know what it is showing? It is showing what we have inside. And what we have inside is unbelief. We want to be in control. We want to make sure that everything is according to our plans. And when anything makes us deviate from it, we get frustrated. Jesus says, your father is in control. He knows what you need. And then that brings us to the provided. Not the provider, but who are the ones provided? Those who are the object of God's love. Your heavenly father feeds them. Your heavenly Father dresses them. Your heavenly Father knows what you have need of even before you ask Him. 
Can we connect with that? Do you know how many times the love of God, the agape love of God appears in the New Testament? According to Google, I didn't count them. So if Google is wrong, me too. 142 times. Why does the New Testament have to repeat 142 times that God loves us to death? Why do you think? Because we forget. Because we miss it, and we have to keep reading and be hit with it again. And we miss it, and we keep reading, and we are hit with it again. And perhaps after 142 times, we'll get it. He loves his own. (laughs) How conscious are we of the love of God? See, there's a text we quote a lot. Galatians 2.21. I'm crucified with Christ. No, No longer I live but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died himself or offered himself for me. You know what's funny? We love to use that text to speak of particular atonement. I'm a good tulip, reformed, particular atonement. There you go. He died for me. (laughs) What about he loved me? We miss that? He loved me to the point of dying for me. Oh, yes, but total depravity. We are completely corrupt and unable to come to God on our own. No one seeks after God. Yes, amen. Total depravity. But he loved me. I get it. My nature is completely corrupt. I get it. Without Christ, there's nothing I can do. I get it. Nothing good dwells in me. I get it. It is true. It is in the Bible. But he loved me. 142 times he loved me. That's where our identity lies. Our identity is not how much money we make. It's not where do we work. People tease me, you don't have any other t-shirts except those that say Komatsu? Well, it's cheaper for me to wear those instead of buying them, but yeah, I like them. But that's not my identity either. Our identity is God loved me. Yes, we are depraved. But now we are justified, sanctified, glorified, seated in the heavenly places with Christ, united to Christ, and God loves me and you if you are in Christ, if you believe. And here comes a lesser to the greater argument again. If God feeds the birds, doesn't he care more for you than for birds? I was talking to, to the gentleman who, who does my pest control yesterday. Devastated. His 18-year-old dog died. Devastated. And I have Simba. And I already, I'm already starting to cry when Simba dies. I know. I get it. If you're a pet lover, you love them as your children. And they are obedient children. They don't even disobey you. So they are, in a sense, better <laughs> to a point. Right? They, are not, they don't go through that teenager phase of children. But... God loves you more than you can love a beloved pet. God loves you more than you can love anything or anyone. God cares more for you than he cares for birds. Sometimes Annelise and I are walking during our night walk and we find one of those uh, dogs dead. You know that they cross the street and they are the owners of the road and everybody has to stop for them. Some people are cruel and they kill them. And it's heartbreaking to see one of them dead. Well, God cares more for you, for one of you, 
including me, than for many birds. And if he dresses the grass that has no value, will he not dress you and your children and your parents if you have to care for your parents and whomever it is that you have to provide for? He will. Now, this is Jesus talking. You're sounding like Joel Osteen. I don't care how how am I sounding, this is what the text says. And that is the problem some of us have. That we're so afraid of sounding like those who are not for real sound that we miss the point of Scripture. Now I have to give a note of balance. I am aware that there was a horrible earthquake in Turkey and in the northwest part of, of Syria with scores of thousands of dead people. You've read the news, me too. I'll tell you what, it doesn't change a word of this passage. God is God. And I'm not here to apologize for God. He sent the earthquake to whom and when and where he decided. And it's above my pay grade to question why and for what. He is God. Still doesn't change the text. Your heavenly Father cares for you. And then, what is the priority? The text says, seek first. In light of all of that, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Please notice, it says seek first. It doesn't say seek only. It doesn't say just seek. We are not disembodied spirits. We have needs. You have to eat, we have to drink, we have to dress. We have mortgages to pay, we have bills to pay, utilities to pay, fuel to put in our cars, etc., etc., etc. We have needs. Yes, we're human beings. We live here on earth. We don't live anywhere else. But Jesus says, your father knows. He knows. Don't be like the Gentiles who desperately look for those things. God knows. Remember Jeff Gwynn, those who are old in Cornerstone. You would come to Jeff Gwynn with this great problem. The world is falling apart. And Jeff would just look at you and say, God knows. (laughs) It's true. It's the deepest theological thing you can say to any person. God knows. He knows what you need. He knows your concern. He knows your fears. I have words for you. Jesus went through them all without sin. He was tempted and tried in all things we are, except that he never sinned. So God knows. Therefore, seek first. Make your priority the kingdom of God. Remember Jesus in the temple? He got lost and and his parents were nervous. Where is he? And when they found him, where were you? Twelve years old. Well, he, he did it respectfully. I, I had to be in my father's business. I had to be minding my father's issues. And he was in the temple. And that's the point of the text. Seek first the things that have to do with your father's business. Seek first the righteousness of God. Paul says the righteousness of God is manifested in two areas. The law and the gospel. The law reflects God's character, but we cannot keep it. The law restrains evil, but evil keeps happening. The law reminds us what is God's will, but we cannot do God's will. 
So he sent Jesus, who kept the law, fulfilled the law, and suffered the consequences of the law on the cross, so that now we may be justified before God's presence. And what do we do now? We keep seeking his righteousness. We keep seeking whatever promotes what is pure, what is righteous, what is virtuous, what is of good repute. If there's anything praiseworthy, if there's anything worth mentioning, because it brings glory to God, we seek those things. If we can promote the gospel of righteousness by sharing it. Remember when Tony used to say, uh, go share the gospel and use words if needed. No, no, words are always needed. <laughs> Tony no longer says that. He rectified his theology. No, no, we need to use words. Nobody's going to come to Christ because they see our sober, sour, serious face because we're holy people. Nobody comes to the Lord that way. Forget it. People come to the Lord hearing the gospel from people who live and act like they have been forgiven, provided, loved, and cared for. So yes, seek that righteousness seek it in our in 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 our uh, living the gospel some people are great at, at preaching the gospel but then in the office when somebody finds out they are christians you say what that such and such is a christian they go to church but their mouths at work doesn't sound like the mouth of a person who who goes to church their attitude doesn't seem to be the attitude of a person who goes to church. No, we live the gospel too. Whatever is the will of God, we seek first. And not the will of God, of God said to my heart to do this. No, no. The will of God in the book. The revealed word of God. Not what God said to your heart. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Whenever God says something to your heart, be careful. How does this look in real time? How does this looking the kingdom of God and his righteousness look in, in our daily lives? Well, it's going to show in our time management. Where are the things of God in our daily agendas? Not in the hour we come to evangelical mass with priest Freddy or priest Darren or priest, whomever preaches here, I'm one of them. No, no. In my time management, where, where, what is the place of the kingdom? Where is the place of God's righteousness in our choices? Even how we dress. Even how we dress. Am I checking the kingdom of God and His righteousness so that when people see me, even though they'll see a chubby, short, ugly guy at least he will not be smelly and improperly dressed and if it's a lady a hundred times more because ladies have the ability to provoke to sin see i have the advantage that i will not provoke anyone to sin but you guys can <laughs> will you consider the kingdom of god even in your choices to dress will you consider the kingdom of god in your finances somebody says oh can you share your budget with me they have no idea who you are. It's just a financial planner. And you say, oh, here's my Excel sheet. Here's my whatever, my numbers, whatever app you use. And when they see it, they say, oh, I see you're a believer. <laughs> Will they see it? Because of your budget? Because the expenditures and the items that you give value in your spending reflect that the kingdom of God 
is a priority for you? Where does the local church fit into your whole gamut of things? Local church is the last thing. God is opening doors for me to go to Alaska. I'm going to be one of those uh, dead sea, deadly sea fishing guys. And he opened the door. Where will you worship? Oh, I don't know. But God is opening. He's sending me to Alaska. Really? Do you think God will send you to a place that your soul will not be fed? That you will not have fellowship with the saints? That you will not have an opportunity to minister to his people? Where does the local church fit in your agenda? Or is this just another patch in your life? Then there's a promise. And that's the last point. The promise is, all these other things shall be added unto you. What shall we drink? What shall we eat? What shall we wear? What shall we put on? What shall we do? Nay, worry. Those things will be added to you. That's a promise from Christ. I, I, very few things. I, when I am a counseling people, I'm dogmatic. Because you're dealing with people's souls. So you don't want to be, uh, me personally, I don't want to be dogmatic telling you, you should do this, you should do that. But there's one thing that I am dogmatic. When I point someone to choose God first, I tell them dogmatically, God will take care of the rest. Just do what is right. Even if it costs you your job, if it costs you whatever, God will provide it. You know why? Because Jesus promised it. Now, it's great to live to 60 years old and realize, yes, it is true. Because I've seen it firsthand. Not because I'm faithful. Let me make the clarification. But because God is faithful. And His faithfulness has very little to do with ours. Just seek the kingdom first. The prosperity gospel is a heresy. It's not that I think it's a heresy. It's a heresy. The prosperity gospel is a heresy. It is necessary that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. If the prosperity gospel is true, then Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Then Jesus was not God's beloved son. And Paul? Paul was a disaster. Prosperity gospel is a heresy. But prosperity gospel is a heresy based on something which is true. Do you know what it is? That God will bless the cheerful giver. That God will provide for those who seek his kingdom first. Mark 10, 28 through 30. After Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. Peter says, Lord, we have left everything. What shall we get? We have left everything to follow you. Jesus replied, truly I tell you. These are Jesus' words. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, yes, and in the age to come, eternal life. It's in the Bible. Do we believe it? We have Christ already. 
we have the righteousness of God. We have and we have been ushered in to the kingdom of God through the blood of Christ. Will we live giving priority to that kingdom? May it be so. Father, bless your word and apply it to our hearts. And forgive our sins as we forget these things and we become anxious and frustrated and and bittered and, and desperate at times because of the earthly things that you have promised to take care of. May we be changed into given priority to your kingdom and to your righteousness. May your kingdom and righteousness appear first in our agendas, in our checkbooks, in our time, in everything we do. And we ask it for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.